Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back in the Word of God with you. Our second study of Christ through the ages centers on Isaiah 49, the second servant song. And it centers on the appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. As you make your way to Isaiah 49, I'd like to begin our time by telling you the true account of an amazing story that took place at a nursing home not all that long ago. A woman by the name of Janet leads a weekly ministry to some of the women in this nursing home. An Alzheimer's patient named Betsy faithfully comes each and every week. Betsy has to be led to the study by some of the staff, but Once she gets there, she sits through the hour with no problem at all. Every week, Janet introduces herself, and every week, Betsy responds as if she's never seen her before. After a few weeks, Janet learned that Betsy had retained the ability to read. She has no comprehension of what she's reading and will repeat the same lines over and over like a record that is stuck until someone prompts her to move on. But on a good day, she can read a passage straight through in a clear, strong voice. So Janet began to call on her each week to read a hymn. One Friday, the hymn that was picked for Betsy to read was The Old Rugged Cross. Betsy began to read, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Betsy stopped. She started to get upset. And then she said, I can't go on. It's too sad. Too sad. The other seniors taking part could not believe what they were seeing. Some of them gasped. Some of them just sat and stared. In all the years of living at the nursing home, not once had Betsy shown the ability to put words together in a coherent thought. But now, Betsy clearly understood. And Janet was quick to let her know that she did not have to read if she didn't want to. But after a pause, Betsy started to read again, and she stopped at the same place. A tear made a trail down each cheek on her face. I can't go on. It's so sad. Completely unaware that she had said the same thing two minutes before. She tried again and again reacted with a sudden shock of recognition, grief, and the exact same words. Finally, when Betsy seemed calm enough, Janet led her to the elevator so that she could return Betsy to her room. But on the way, Betsy just began singing the hymn from memory. The words came in choppy phrases. She could barely carry the tune, but anyone could recognize the hymn. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And as she sang, new tears came again. But this time, Betsy kept going, still from memory, gaining strength as she sang. And I love that old cross, where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. Somewhere in her tattered mind, damaged neurons had tapped into a network of old connections to resurrect a memory of meaning for Betsy. In her confusion, two things stood out, suffering and shame. Those are the words that summarize the condition of man. And what to him so beautifully illustrates is that the one who understands suffering and shame better than us is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is a stunning picture that is painted for us in the second servant song. Let's go ahead and read our text, Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people, to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Remember some of the ground that we covered in our first study. In these four poems known as the servant songs, the Hebrew prophet reveals a clear vision of the Messiah. Isaiah introduces Yahweh's servant, He introduces God the Father sending God the Son on our behalf. It is a message of God's saving grace. God the Father sent the servant on a mission. And as we look at this second servant song, recognize in these opening verses that it is the servant himself that is speaking to the nations of the world. The servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, he had an announcement to make, and this is something that he had been called to and commissioned to by Yahweh. The message of this second servant song is that he had a mission to restore the nation of Israel. Now, down in the second half of verse 6, we're going to see that Yahweh had called him to be his servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So again, we know that the servant in this passage cannot refer to the nation of Israel because the mission of the servant is to draw the nation of Israel back to Yahweh. The servant will completely fulfill what the nation should have done. 
But it's more than just this. God has a plan for Israel that has never been fulfilled, and therefore, the Messiah must come to restore Israel, to give them the full boundaries of their land that God intended for them. The Messiah must come to redeem them and to free them from the yoke of the Gentile nations. And this in turn means that both the servant and the nation of Israel will become a light to the nations in the coming messianic kingdom of God. Notice again how verse 1 begins. The servant, God the Son, is speaking. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Again, the coastlands, the people of the remote parts of the earth. The Lord is seeking the attention of all the people of the world from the whole earth. The servant speaks here with absolute authority, commanding the world to listen, because the mission of the servant impacts every single person who has lived. It honestly reminds me of Mark 9, where Peter, James, and John went up with the Lord on the mountain. Christ was transfigured, a cloud comes over them, and God the Father declares with absolute authority, this is my beloved Son, hear him. Here we have the servant, the Son of God, the Messiah, calling for the nations of the world to listen to him, to take heed to his message, but with good reason. The Lord, here referring to God the Father, Yahweh, God the Father had called or appointed the servant from the womb. Last line of the verse expands the teaching from the matrix of my mother, matrix, the womb. From the womb of my mother, he has made mention of my name. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come on his own, and his mission was not an afterthought. He came as the one commissioned by the Father. He came to do his Father's will. His name represents his position and his mission as the Messiah. In other words, the hope of the world begins in the heart of the Creator, who is unwilling to let his people go. This should make us think of Matthew one twenty one, when Joseph was told by an angel of the Lord that Mary would bring forth a son, that they should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because the name Jesus literally means Yahweh is Savior. The servant was claiming a calling from God the Father from before his birth, and his name Jesus was given even before his birth. Luke 2 teaches us that he was given this name by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Take a look at verse 2 in our text. This should grab your attention. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Just take the first part of the verse. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. The consistent teaching of the word of God is that the words of Christ, this is the weapon that he will use to strike down those who refuse to submit to him. Words come from the mouth, and so the sword is a figure of speech representing the words of the servant that cut like a sword. In Revelation 19, the Lord is called the Word of God, and then the text teaches us that at his second coming, out of his mouth will go a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. But even now, his word is like a sword. Ephesians 6 refers to his word as the sword of the Spirit. And of course, Hebrews 4.12 teaches us the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The words of the servant would cut like a sword. His words bring both life and judgment. Now focus on the second part of the verse. The servant referring to the father. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. The idea of a shadow suggests protection. But I think it's more than just protection here. The servant's mission was hidden, concealed. The teaching here is that the servant would be available for the father's use whenever needed. He would not be prominent at all times, but would be protected and hidden until summoned into use. Now, both the sword and the arrow are offensive weapons, and the idea is, like a sword, he can defeat his enemies that are close by, and like a polished shaft or arrow, arrows were rubbed down, polished, to make them better at flight. Like a polished arrow, the servant can destroy the enemies of God that are far off in the distance. The idea is of the power of God, and this arrow hits the mark with deadly accuracy. But again, notice the further point that is illustrated at the end of the verse. In his quiver... He has hidden me. There is an eternal purpose for the ministry of Christ that would be revealed at the right time. Peter wrote in his first epistle that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Yahweh caused his servant to be hidden until the right time when he came ready to carry out the will of the Father. Now, this brings us to an important concept in the Old Testament. The ministry of Christ did not begin at the incarnation. When Isaiah wrote this passage, the words of Jesus, for the most part, were still hidden with God, like a sword that rests in the sheath with his hand upon the handle, like a polished arrow ready in a quiver. The final word of God was yet to be revealed. Let's take the time to nail down this teaching. Turn to Hebrews 1. Now, most of you know this text, but we need to examine the wording carefully. Hebrews 1, it teaches us, starting in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, let's think carefully of these words in the Old Testament. God primarily used the prophets to convey his message. Then Christ came, and the revelation of God came from the Son. But understand with me that this text does not teach that in the Old Testament, God only used the prophets. Verse 1 teaches us that the fathers, the Old Testament believers, God spoke to them how? At various times and in various ways by the prophets. But what I would like to suggest to you is that Christ, God the Son, was active but hidden in his ministry of directly communicating with some of the Old Testament saints. Inherent in the teaching of Isaiah 49 is the existence of Christ before the virgin birth. His ministry was hidden, but Christ was active in the affairs of men. Turn to John chapter 8. There's a few passages that we need to look at to help us better wrestle with this concept of the work and ministry of Christ in the Old Testament. John 8, look to verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived 2,000 years before the events of John 8, but Christ is directly claiming his pre-existence and is claiming to be God. The phrase, I am, refers back to Exodus 3.14, where God identified himself to Moses as, I am who I am. 
The Jews in John 8 correctly understood that Jesus was claiming to be the eternal God. And this is the teaching of the New Testament. And in our next couple of studies, we're going to look at a few more passages that testify of the eternal Son of God. But for now, flip back to chapter 1 of John. Now, this is one of those verses that you've read many, many times, but sometimes we need to connect the dots and think of the implications. John 1, jump down to verse 18. Notice the teaching. No one has seen God at any time. Let's just stop there for a minute. Didn't Isaiah say in Isaiah 6, 5, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 1 Timothy 1, 17 testifies God is invisible. 1 Timothy 6.16 teaches that God dwells in unapproachable light, and no man has seen or can see God. No man can approach God. No man can see God. Exodus 33 teaches no man can see God and live. Therefore, John goes on to teach us the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. The teaching of John 1.18 is that God the Father sent God the Son, to reveal God to mankind. And so what we see in the Old Testament is that sometimes God revealed himself in visions or dreams, and at other times God did appear in bodily form. I believe the teaching of the New Testament is that when God did appear in the Old Testament in bodily form, it was the pre-incarnate Son of God. Pre-incarnate simply meaning before the incarnation, before Christ came to the world through the virgin birth. Now, one of the titles for Christ in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord. Now, how do we know this is not just an angel? How do we know this is God the Son? Let me give you a few reasons. First, the angel of the Lord actually claimed to be God. In Exodus 3, 6, when revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Second, the angel of the Lord is addressed in the Old Testament as God. Hagar did this in Genesis 16, when she said, You are the God who sees. Gideon also did this in Judges 6.22, when he said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And third, the angel of the Lord accepted the worship of men. The angel of the Lord never makes any appearances in the New Testament after the birth of Christ. But instead, what we see is that after the cross, the appearances of Christ and the word of God are described as appearances of the risen Lord. Let's just look at a few of these. Joshua 5, head there if you would. This first text is unlike some of the others because the Bible does not refer to the angel of the Lord. But my belief is that this is Christ, and I think you will see why. Now, Joshua and the army of Israel are about to attack Jericho. Joshua 5, pick it up with verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua worshiped. And this was holy ground. 
Christ appeared to assure him of victory and to let him know that the Lord would lead them. Begin to look for Christ in the Old Testament as you study the Word of God. I think you'll be surprised how active he was. Turn this time to Exodus 14. The tribes of Israel have left Egypt. Pharaoh and his chariots are pursuing them. The people of Israel are scared because they were up against the sea. And verse 10 testifies they cried out to the Lord. Notice verse 19 of Exodus 14. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud in darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. The angel of God moved behind the Israelites to protect them from the Egyptians heading their way. The angel of God went from guiding them in the front to guarding them from the Egyptians and produced such darkness that the Egyptians could not advance toward them. And again, we know this was God himself because listen to the wording right before this in Exodus 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now move over to Exodus 23, verse 20. Israel is camped at Mount Sinai and tucked into the instruction given to the people through Moses. We find a little more revelation about this angel or messenger of God. Exodus 23, pick it up with verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Notice, beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries, for my angel will go before you. This angel, this messenger, had the ability to forgive sins. And again in verse 21, for my name is in him. God was present in his son. When Israel was in the wilderness on two different occasions, the nation got their water from a rock. In Exodus 17, it was at the start of their wilderness wanderings. And the Lord spoke to Moses, telling him to strike the rock so that the people could drink. And again, near the end of their time in the wilderness, in Numbers 20, the Lord again told them they would get their water from a rock. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul told the church that, listen, the one that followed Israel, it was Christ. Christ was the source of the water they drank. Christ was with the nation of Israel in the wilderness. These are just a handful of the many passages that we could turn to that show us Christ was active in the life of Israel. But his ministry was hidden in the Old Testament, just as Isaiah stated in verse 2, simply meaning that Jesus was not prominent at all times. They didn't have the full revelation of who Christ is that we have in the New Testament because the Father kept him hidden until it was time for him to be revealed. He's never referred to as Christ in the Old Testament, but instead we see the titles Son, Yahweh, and the Angel of Yahweh. Make your way back to our text. Verse 3 in our text is pretty straightforward. The text proclaims, And he said to me, This is God the Father now speaking to the servant. You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. 
Notice with me that the servant here is now referred to as Israel. That is simply because Jesus is the only one who can redeem the nation. He alone can accomplish what Israel as a nation failed to do. It is through the servant that the Father would be glorified. John 1.14 teaches, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the ministry of Jesus at His first advent, if you looked at it according to the standards of the world, it could be labeled as less than successful. Because instead of turning to God, the nation of Israel crucified their Messiah. This is why the servant proclaims in verse 4, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. This is God the Son responding to God the Father. And kind of an amazing truth to read, but I think this honestly points us to the humanity of Christ. This same teaching is found in the New Testament. John 1.11 teaches, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Messiah was rejected by Israel. The crowds, they no longer followed him at the end. The religious leaders of the day plotted his death, and his own disciples forsook him in the face of danger. The Messiah suffered greatly at the hands of men, and at the cross he even prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The servant poured out his strength to accomplish the work of the Father, but he would be vindicated after his death and resurrection. The servant knew the Father would reward him. And I think the thing that amazes me the most about the cross is that in our arrogance, mankind rejected God. But God, he didn't respond in arrogance. He didn't respond in power and judgment. Instead, he came with humility, willing to suffer because the servant lived to please the Father. This verse should encourage us because it teaches us that as we live to share Christ, at times it can be discouraging as people reject the Savior. But the feelings of futility and faith in God, they can coexist. The servant trusted the Father for the final outcome of his ministry, even though it appeared to be ineffective. Let this be a lesson for us. Verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be a servant? to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Verses 5 and 6 describe the mission of the servant. It was to restore the preserved ones of Israel and to be a light to the Gentiles. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. That one day the nations of the earth will be blessed through Israel. This awaits his second coming at the end of the tribulation. Right now the gospel is preached throughout the world and the gospel of Christ is certainly a light to the Gentiles. But this text looks forward to the coming day when the nations of the world will worship the Messiah. Verses 7 and 8 go on to refer to the millennium when Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem. Now, Paul did quote verse 6 in Acts 13 to explain his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul used verse 6 to support his identification of the servant as the Messiah Jesus. And the Great Commission means it is now our task to carry out the work of the servant. But, When Christ establishes his messianic kingdom, 
Israel will be restored and Christ will be the light of the world. Don't think of the light of Christ as only referring to the gospel. It goes beyond this. It includes the knowledge of God, knowing him intimately and living in harmony with Christ. Jeremiah 31 looks forward to the day when this will be fulfilled. Verses 33 and 34 teach us that at that time, the Lord says, referring to Israel, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. God will put his law in the hearts of men. And Isaiah eleven nine teaches us that at that time, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The mission of the servant from his birth is to restore Israel and to reconcile the men and women of the world to God. Now, because of time, we're going to move quickly with the rest of our text. But notice with me in verse 7 that the Messiah that was once rejected will one day be worshipped. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel and he has chosen you. The day is coming when kings and princes will bow before the servant chosen by the Father. At the second coming of Christ, every knee will bend, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Those that doubt the future restoration of Israel, those that doubt the coming messianic kingdom of God, are calling into question the very faithfulness of God that he has promised to fulfill his word. Take a look at the coming ministry of the servant. Let's read verses 8 through 12. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Keep in mind as we work through this, this is the start of the millennium or the acceptable time, the day of salvation. Now, at that time, the Father will hear or take heed to the servant's complaint that his mission toward Israel was in vain. This is the time when the Lord will accomplish salvation for his people. During this time, the servant will be a covenant for the people, meaning that the covenant promises of God to Israel will be fulfilled, including the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. The earth will be restored, and this will be a time of great joy. Now, Paul did quote verse 8 and the day of salvation in 2 Corinthians 6, using this verse as an application to remind the church of Corinth that the day is coming when they would stand before the Lord. But the meaning here looks to the time when God will deliver the Jewish people. The image given in the rest of the text 
is the restoration of a devastated land. Remember, this is after the tribulation. The captives bound in sin will return to the promised land from around the world. Israel will inherit her land. And so what I want you to walk away with is the understanding that these verses give us a beautiful picture of the liberated nation, Israel, the people set free from bondage, making their way back to the promised land. The pastures that were once desolate will now be fertile. In fact, the people of God will even be able to feed on the crops on the side of the road, given the picture that the pastures will be abundant, overflowing with crops. During the millennium, the good shepherd will take care of his flock. Verse 10 teaches us there will not be hunger or thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. The Lord will safely guide the people. The people will have shelter. He will lead his people and meet their needs. Remember, this was written to the Hebrew people. And as a nation, they had wandered through the wilderness when they left Egypt, constantly depending on the Lord for both food and water. But during this future time, they could know the shepherd of Israel will have mercy on them. The basic idea in verse 11 is that mountains will not be a barrier in order that the people can come to the promised land. God will remove the obstacles before the people. And looking at verse 12, remember that at the second coming, Christ is going to bring Israel back into the land. It will be the end of the times of the Gentiles. The nation of Israel, as we know it today, during the tribulation, the people will scatter yet again. As the Hebrew people flee the persecution of the Antichrist, this is referred to in Revelation 12 as Israel flees into the wilderness. This text looks forward to when they shall again return to the land to inherit all the land that they have been promised. I think the return of the Jews is the primary reference in this text. And notice some of the wording in verse 12. Surely these shall come from afar. And then the text grabs our attention by saying, Look, those from the north and the west. These are the Hebrew exiles making their way back from distant lands. Quite the sight to behold. But also keep in mind the teaching that during the millennium, the people of the world will come to Jerusalem to worship God. The idea of Sinem is the ends of the civilized world. It was probably either on the southern end of ancient Egypt or to the far east in China. The Hebrew people will return to the land from the most remote parts of the earth which leads us to a brief word of praise. Verse 13, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Remember, at the time when this was written, Israel was being judged by a holy God for their sin. By this time, in the book of Isaiah, the southern tribes of Judah, along with Isaiah himself, were now in captivity in Babylon. Israel could rejoice and look to the day when, as a nation, they would have a future once again. This afflicted nation would receive the mercy of God. But understand, this is celebrating not just a return from captivity for Israel. This celebration is because of redemption, deliverance from sin, and the restoration of God's creation. There is the true story of a Maasai warrior that lived in Africa by the name of Joseph. One day he was walking along a road. Keep in mind the roads I'm talking about are not like ours in the United States. He was walking along a road that was a dirt road. It's hot there. It's dry and dusty. Joseph was walking along and he met someone who shared the gospel with him. Joseph was excited to hear the gospel because all of the religions he had heard of were nothing like what he was hearing about. He accepted Christ as his Savior. 
Joseph was so excited on the way back to his village, as the power of God's Spirit indwelt him, he became just on fire about the free offer of eternal life. So he headed back to his village, determined to share the message of the gospel. Joseph got back to the village and he started going door to door, telling everyone he met about Jesus Christ, what Christ did on the cross for us, and the salvation that is so freely offered. Joseph was a brand new Christian. He just accepted Christ, and he expected that every single person would be excited about this. He really expected that every single person he met would be excited about this free offer of eternal life. But instead of seeing faces light up with excitement, the people were indifferent. They actually became so annoyed with him that they became violent. The men in the village held him on the ground, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. Then they dragged him from the village and left him to die. But somehow, Joseph managed to crawl to a spot with some water, and after several days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He was confused about the hostile reception that he had just gotten from the people in the village that he had known his entire life. They were never mean to him before. Keep in mind, he was a brand new Christian. He didn't realize that now with Christ living in him, that this would bring about hatred towards him. Because people in the world, they hate Christ. Joseph came to the conclusion that he must have left something out of the gospel message. That somehow he didn't tell the message of the gospel right. That he did it wrong. He rehearsed the best he could, the gospel message, as he heard it from the stranger on the road. And when he finished practicing what he had heard, he went back to the village and decided to share his faith again. Now, just as excited as he was the first time, Joseph limped into the circle of huts in the village and he once again began to preach the message of Christ. The words he kept saying were, He died for you so that you might receive forgiveness and come to know the living God. He pleaded with the people, and as he was pleading with them, once again, the men in the village grabbed him. The women beat him again, opening up all the wounds that had just started to heal. And once more, they dragged him out into the wilderness and left him to die. Now, to survive this type of beating once is a miracle, but twice, this was not expected. Because this time, the villagers had tried to make sure that this time he would die. A couple of days later, Joseph woke up. He was bruised. He was scared and barely alive. He eventually got up just as determined as before to share the message of Christ with the villagers that he loved. But this time, before getting back to the village and starting to share it with them, they attacked him before he even had the opportunity to share the message. And as they were beating him, he tried to get out as much of the message as he could, trying to share as they were beating him, trying to tell them how they could be reconciled to God before he was knocked unconscious again. Before he passed out, the last thing he remembered was seeing some of the women that were beating him. They were starting to cry. This time when he woke up, he woke up in his own bed, and the ones that had been trying to kill him were now trying to nurse him back to health because the people of this village had come to salvation in Christ Jesus from this man's steady witness for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 confronts us with the stark reality that as believers in Christ, we may be called upon to suffer like our Savior. Listen to the words from Peter. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." The suffering of Christ is set before us as the supreme example that we should be ready to embrace if it is a part of the Lord's will for our lives. Christ committed himself to the sovereign plan of the Father in order that we might live for righteousness. The words of Isaiah 49 are written for the faithful remnant who, like Jesus, are despised and rejected by men. Find your rest in the Lord. Look to the day when we will be reunited face to face with the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. Rely on the strength that God gives, his gentle servant to set people free from the bondage of sin. Trust in his power and ability to accomplish our salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus came to speak his word. Let's listen. Jesus came to suffer. Let's trust him. Jesus came to save. Let's tell the world. And Jesus is coming again to rule. Let's bow before him. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 